0: Radio Influence, podcasting redefined.
1: All right, and welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. Just like to ask you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That definitely helps us out greatly. A couple of contact points to be aware of. 855-LAW-FATHER is the best way to reach us. Lawfather at tampalawfather.com is the email address that is specially dedicated to this show. Uh, Instagram is the lawfather tampa of which we are live streaming uh, on Instagram for this podcast and Facebook we are the lawfather. Now, for all the personal injury attorneys out there, med mal attorneys, uh, any attorney that needs to get medical records I really encourage you to give Bravo Delta Legal Services a call. They do a great job with our medical records and getting all those put together. So give them a call, 813-591-4259. And, uh, kind of without further ado, let's jump right into things. Uh, as we all know, the coronavirus is the uh, big topic of everywhere. And we, uh, we have a little bit of a, a legal case. To discuss that is going to come out of the coronavirus and it's a case out of New York and we're gonna take this case out of New York we're gonna look at it from the criminal side we're gonna look at it from the civil side and yes it's in New York so New York's going to follow New York law so the end result is probably going to be different could be different in New York than it is uh, it would be here in Florida uh, we're gonna look at it from the Florida law perspective because well I'm a Florida licensed attorney and I wouldn't be able to make any comment on New York law. So just so that everybody's clear, my comments regarding this case are, are all solely related to Florida law. Now, here's the facts that we have. We have an elderly woman. She has dementia. She's at a hospital in New York. Now, this was uh, April 8th is when the news story came out. So really pretty much right in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And as a lot of us, have heard or anybody who's kind of halfway paying attention to the news new york is somewhat the epicenter for the country so we know that there's a lot going on there Uh, it's heavily populated area densely populated Uh, i believe this was in brooklyn so uh, we're, we're right in the middle of the city there and we're at a hospital there and and you know there's a lot of people and from all accounts it's a pretty hectic time so Here we have an elderly woman with dementia. She's in the hospital. The hospital won't let her family see her, stay with her. Uh, It sounds like the family may have been the one that generally helps take care of of this elderly woman and and her dementia and making sure that she knows where she is at all times and just the general things that you would need to do for someone with dementia. Uh, Then we also have a 30-year-old woman who is in the hospital as well don't know why she's in the hospital and just as an aside the elderly woman was not in the hospital because of her dementia Uh, she was in the hospital for some other other uh, medical ailment however uh, she does have dementia and that's i think the key to this whole thing now the 30 year old woman like i said don't know why she was in there but she did have an iv uh not sure if uh, any of you listening Have ever had an iv before it's they literally take a needle they put a needle into you then string it through a plastic tube up to a bag so you know you you have a needle in you and and you might get a little leery of people getting close to you now you know i can't look this story doesn't have a good ending okay let's start there this story has a terrible ending the story ends with and i'm gonna give you the end first and then let's circle back so that we know how bad this ending is The story ends with the elderly woman dying and the 30-year-old woman being arrested on manslaughter charges. That's where we end, okay? Don't want to diminish or discount the end result of this story, but I do think that from a legal standpoint, it's very, very interesting to talk about, which is why we're going to talk about it. So elderly woman with dementia is in the hospital. She's walking around unattended. She's all by herself. Probably not the best thing for an elderly woman with dementia during a pandemic, Okay, especially in New York City. Well, uh, Brooklyn, which is still New York City, but not how we typically think of New York City as far as Manhattan. But just as densely populated, uh, much more densely populated than anywhere in Florida, where where we're based, even Tampa, which is uh, one of the bigger cities in the state. But here we have this elderly woman. She's walking around. OK, elderly individuals don't always have the best balance. It's just kind of a fact. And, you know, we, here's what happens. She goes, she loses her balance because, well, she is an elderly woman and that sometimes happens. So she reaches, she grabs on to the IV pole of the 30 year old woman. Well, social distancing, get six feet away, six feet away, all of that. Well, 30 year old woman pushes the elderly woman. She falls to the ground. Uh, she does later later die from her injuries. Uh, I did read somewhere where it was cardiac arrest. Now, initially, the hospital gives a summons. Now, New York does things a little differently. I've had a case, actually, uh, that was in New York and um, got local counsel there. And there's a, a process called ProHog vice. It's a fancy Latin word that basically says, hey, you're in Florida, you're not licensed in New York. You can come in and practice law in New York or any state for that matter, uh, the given state that you're you're asking for that special admission into to work that particular case. New York does these things called summons. Okay, it's basically the precursor to them starting a case. So that's what they the hospital issues, the summons. I don't know under what authority the hospital has to issue a summons, but they do. They issue a summons to the 30 year old woman. An autopsy is done on the elderly woman. And it is found that uh, it was a homicide. Now, homicide is just by definition, the killing of a human by another human. That's what homicide is. It doesn't say whether or not it was self-defense. Doesn't say whether it was done on purpose. Doesn't say anything. Okay, homicide is different from murder and manslaughter. Murder and manslaughter give us some indication of why. Okay, why somebody killed somebody else. Uh, manslaughter generally uh, has some sort of aspect to it that it was an accident. Okay, uh, murder generally has the ramification that or the indication that it was done on purpose. Now, premeditated, which is kind of what we hear on TV and see in the movies is, you know, they talk about oh, premeditated murder. Well, someone gave some, what in the legal term, malice a forethought as to uh, what they were doing. Okay. Um, so I have a gun in a lockbox and I want to go shoot that person. I'm going to go get that gun and I'm going to go shoot that person, even if it's bang, bang, bang. Okay. And no pun intended on the bang, bang, bang. But if those chain of events happen really in really close proximity to each other, it is still generally considered premeditated because you had that thought before that. So that's murder. And we're getting off on a little bit of a tangent. So let's let's bring ourselves back into this. So we have a 30 year old woman that has been charged with manslaughter now in the death of this elderly woman. Now, let's start with the criminal aspect to it. All right. My office does handle criminal law. I spent six years in law enforcement and, you know, have do some criminal defense. We have a former state attorney on our staff as an attorney, and she does a great job with the criminal defense. Um, so we do handle that. That's kind of right up our alley here. So, you know, to get into that a little bit, is self-defense an actual defense in this one? Okay. Now, if you take a pandemic out of it, do you still have self-defense? Maybe. Okay. Okay. Somebody's grabbing onto something that's attached to you. Might you be in some fear? Maybe. All right. A 30-year-old woman and an elderly woman, I think that becomes more and more of a stretch. Now, let's take that and add the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of something that and, and this is not meant to be a political view. This is not meant to be for or against the media. We're just in a time where we're being fed lots of information that says This virus is really, really bad. This virus is easily caught. This virus has potential to be deadly. Okay. So, and you can't see it. You have no idea. That guy comes up to you with a gun. You can see him. You know, he's dangerous. You know, he has a gun. You know, he could do something to hurt you, right? Somebody has coronavirus. We don't know. I could have it. You listening could have it. I don't know. Bobblehead coach Urso, who's sitting here with me in law father headquarters, he could have it. We wouldn't know. Right. We just don't know. So could it be self-defense? I I would I would challenge you to say, yes, you know what? If I'm defending this 30 year old woman, I'm building a self-defense case. Now, we have our self-defense laws in Florida really strong okay we have what's called stand your ground and you can literally it is what it what it says it is you can stay exactly where you are and defend yourself and we'll get into that in a later podcast in terms of what stand your ground is uh, and i know uh last time i was on ian beckles podcast we kind of touched the service level florida has had some really high profile cases of of self-defense and stand your ground but in this case I would say yes. And I don't know particularly if stand your ground would apply to something like this. Um, You could apply it, but I think the better application is self-defense. You were defending yourself from bodily harm from from another person. Okay, that's what self-defense is. And when you can't look, when you can't see the danger, like we can't see the danger of coronavirus. We can't see when someone has it and they could pass it to us. So. Is it plausible that I could convince a jury that by pushing an elderly person away from me? And look, I'm I'm a 37 year old guy, 190 pounds. Okay, I work out. In a normal circumstance, there's no way. There's no way that me and, and those of you who can see me on uh, on Instagram Live, you can kind of see a little bit that you know I I would. Not struggle with pushing in an elderly woman. And my guess is this thirty year old woman wouldn't struggle with that in a normal sense anyway. But different times, different scenario. We have to look at all of the facts, and all of the facts tell us that there's a pandemic. So self-defense, I think that is entirely reasonable. I think it's uh, plausible that it could work as a self-defense as a defense for this thirty year old woman. Okay, uh, like I said, very very bad story, very very negative. But that's where we are. So now let's flip gears a little bit. Let's look at self at uh, at civil. Okay, two different sides. You have the criminal side and the civil side. Both of those sides have different goals. They also have different burdens. So in in the criminal aspect, our first step is probable cause. In order for them to make the arrest, which I believe they have arrested her. All right. They need probable cause to make that arrest. That is just and there's no easy definition of these things, but um, it's greater than reasonable suspicion. And it's basically um, there's enough evidence to show that that you committed the crime. All right. Which is a lower bar to get over than what the state attorney has to get over in a, or in New York. I believe they call them district attorneys about uh, the bar that they have to get over no matter what states you're in is beyond reasonable doubt some i've heard it also worded as beyond every reasonable doubt there's some kind of question as to whether it is really reasonable doubt or beyond every reasonable reasonable doubt minor difference but basically are there any other circumstances are there any other facts that show that either somebody else did this could have done it should have done it you know is are we really 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 sure that this is the person who committed this crime. Okay? And in this case, yeah, like I said, I think self-defense. But come over to the civil side, our burden there is a tipping of the scales. That's it, right? Is is the is one person more liable than the other one. It's simple. Think of uh you've seen the scales of justice, okay? One side tips down a little bit as being a little bit heavier, winner, okay? That's it in a nutshell. That is the ultra simplified version of this. So on the civil side, does somebody else have liability here? Is this all on the 30-year-old woman? Is this all her fault? And look, I'm a plaintiff's personal injury attorney. I am, right? And you know what? Sometimes people think that um, you know we're we're not the best people, the not not the most morally moral people out there. I would challenge you on that and, and say that. I try to run a very moral and high standard practice, okay? And, you know, that just kind of is what it is. So, you know, just to look at this, though, is there somebody else who has liability? I think so. I think there's a big person who has some major liability in this, and they should be scared. Uh, They really should. I, I think that the hospital has a really really big, there's a really big opportunity for the hospital to be in some pretty big trouble here. And I mean, here's the key. We have an elderly dementia patient, okay, or an elderly patient that has dementia, right? Because she wasn't in for the dementia. But from all accounts, it wasn't a hidden fact that she had dementia. And from all accounts, the, the family wasn't allowed to stay with her because of the pandemic. I understand that. I do, but are is it reasonable, is it negligent of them, them being the hospital, to allow a patient that has dementia to wander the halls of the hospital? I don't think so. You have to come up with some kind of plan, and I know we're in uncharted territory. We're in territory where there is, that we've never seen before, right? Spanish flu in 1918, was the last time we have seen a pandemic of this nature, okay? We are worlds apart from 1918. It was, it was only a hundred plus years ago, but in the big scheme of things, we're a long way from that, right? It's on the hospital. The hospital needed to have some contingency plan there for patients with dementia. It's entirely foreseeable that you could have a patient with dementia in a hospital. And when we talk about negligence, we also are talking about foreseeability. Is this something that someone could have predicted could happen, okay? Um, And I always try to break things down into uh, out of legalese and into regular uh, everyday speech, okay? I think that works best for everybody. I, I try to instill that with my clients whenever we're talking about one of their cases. So foreseeability really is, is this possible? Could somebody have thought through the pros and cons and, and the risks involved with taking in dementia patients? Could someone have seen this happening? And maybe tough to see this particular incident happening where a dementia patient grabs another patient's pole and another patient pushes that person. Maybe, maybe tough to foresee. However, there is this, this paranoia, if you will, uh, this anxiety that is going along with this virus because we can't see. We can't see the thing that has potential to kill us. And that's a problem. And when you're letting a dementia patient walk around the hospital, that's a problem also. So I think a lot of this has to fall on the hospital. From a criminal side, you can't really charge the hospital criminally. You can only deal with them civilly. So my heart goes out to both families involved because both families are hurting both families have had a really really negative thing happen to them and you can't replace that right for the 30-year-olds you can't replace her liberty her freedom for the elderly patient you can't replace her life it just is what it is right the hospital needed to be more responsible the hospital was negligent in this i truly believe that and if this were to happen in florida i would ask that person to call me and say let's go after the hospital okay Let's figure this out. It's the hospital's fault. Maybe someone, the 30-year-old, maybe, okay? But I do think from a legal standpoint that there is the chance that it may have been reasonable for, for the 30-year-old to push the elderly woman away from her who was on her IV, okay? So that's, that's that input there. Okay, Um, that's the liability I think falls on the hospital. Now, you know, there's another piece of civil liability that's out there. And, yeah, you could bring a civil case. The elderly woman's family could bring a civil case against the 30 year old. That that is a possibility, and it would be as I explained before. There's a different bar to get over. So even if the case doesn't survive in a criminal standpoint, you can survive civilly. Um, to go back a little bit, I believe uh, O.J. Simpson. Now I was in middle school when O.J. Simpson was uh, found not guilty of murdering Nicole Brown Simpson and uh, her boyfriend at the time. I don't honestly I don't remember his name, but When that happened, O.J. was found not guilty on the criminal trial. And I believe if memory serves me correctly, now I could be wrong. So if this is wrong, I apologize. But I I do believe he was um, found at fault civilly for the murders. OK, we would say a verdict for the plaintiffs and the plaintiffs being Nicole Brown Simpson's family. And uh, so there, there you can see the difference in the burdens. You can be found not guilty criminally and you can be found at fault. Civilly. Uh, alternatively, I would say actually the 30-year-old woman might actually be able to bring a civil case against the hospital as well. It would it would likely travel under the same theory of liability that we're putting on the hospital by the elderly individuals family. So uh, that's it in a nutshell. Civil, criminal, really exciting stuff from the legal standpoint. Not exciting in real life, and honestly, it's unfortunate because a lot of times in In personal injury law, the things that are exciting from the nerd law standpoint usually have had a a really bad end result from a real life standpoint. Um, But these are the things that we look at. These are the things that we go through. Do you think this is a a very interesting one? And this is one that I'm going to keep following and may come up on a future podcast. So that is the coronavirus New York case in a nutshell. All right. So. Let's change gears a little bit. Let's lighten the load here. Let's get into a local restaurant update staying on the coronavirus topic. We have Tate's Pizza in Tampa on West Shore. I love their pizza. Uh, they also have eggplant fries. Very, very good. And Calaloo in St. Pete. Calaloo is owned by a good friend of mine, Vincent Jackson. So check that out. Um, Vincent's just a great guy all around and is absolutely dominating the business world, just like he dominated on the football field as well. And keeping in the sports topic, uh, let's get into the Bucks' new uniforms. Those of you in Tampa Bay, I love them. I do. Um, the pewter. Brady, pewter jersey, it's going to be great. All right. The red and the white, great also. Taking it back to the Super Bowl roots, really, really like that. And uh, kind of do away with this interim thing that they tried to do with these crazy uniforms. Uh, may have had potential to be really good, but uh, you know, I, I think they just kind of missed the mark on some of those things there. So something interesting though did come out of not only the uniforms, the new uniforms, but with Brady being uh, being signed by Tampa Bay, Brady, Tom Brady wearing number twelve, and Chris Godwin also wearing number twelve. Uh, obviously, they both can't wear wear twelve. Uh, interesting side note: in college, you can have two guys with the same number. However. Uh, one has to play offense and one has to play defense uh, and they both can't be on the field at the same time. Uh, that just comes down to the sheer amount of players that are on a college team and there's not necessarily enough numbers out there. So, but in the NFL, one number per player, uh, their rosters are capped at 55 now. So clearly enough numbers. Um, and if you don't know the the numbers are broken down by position. Uh, so in, um, For your quarterbacks, 10s, I believe they're allowed to wear, they are allowed to wear single digits now. There was a time uh, where the NFL didn't allow that. Uh, Wide receivers can also now uh, wear uh, anything other than 80s. It used to be that you just had to wear something in the 80s. And then uh, linemen, uh, 60s, 70s, uh, those type of numbers. Uh, linebackers generally wear something in the 50s and on from there. So um, that's just kind of a little aside on how football numbers work. If you ever watch a game, you'll see the referee. Uh, sometimes he'll take his hands and run them down his chest, up and down. And that is because a lineman has checked in as an eligible receiver. And it has to do with the numbers. Because alignment isn't wearing a number that is typically designated as somebody who can be down the field, uh, and that's actually likely why they have those number designations. But anyway, we got off on a tangent there, so let's get back to Brady and Godwin, and and these things. How these things usually work is it's usually a bigger name player who moves to a new team and a lesser name player. And no offense to Chris Godwin, but he is not the same level as Tom Brady. Uh, I think he's going to be, he's been a great receiver so far. I think he's going to continue to be a great receiver, Uh, but definitely, definitely not same, you know, automatic Hall of Famer like Brady. So typically, you know, the, the guy in Tom Brady's position will make some sort of financial offer to the other player. And there'll be some sort of financial transaction for the number uh, kind of Good end result here. It sounds like there was no financial transaction. They just are happy to be there, happy to be together, happy to be playing together. And we're able to just swap numbers. So, real cool story there. And uh, staying in football, we have the draft here coming up in about 15, 16 days here, actually, from um, yeah, right around 15, 16 days. So, it's going to be interesting. NFL drafts still on, on uh, the timeline that they've given and it's going to be all remote. So it's going to be really, really interesting. Uh, I think my partner and I are probably going to have to be remote from each other. Also, maybe we'll set up a little zoom call and sit in each of our offices. Uh, I'll probably be in law father headquarters here during the draft, but that's coming up and we're excited about that baseball in Arizona. How about that? It's been a little bit of the talk lately could be kind of interesting. Uh, I could say that you could do the same thing in Florida as you can do in Arizona. So, um, big possibility there. That might be kind of fun. If you took the same thing that they talked about doing in Arizona and maybe doing it in Florida, Uh, basically you sequester everybody. You put every, all of the team personnel in a hotel or not just the team, but the entire league. And you just basically shut it down. And the only people in and out are people that are affiliated with the teams and the teams playing empty stadiums. Uh, could there be some legal ramifications? There could be. Uh, the collective bargaining agreement, bar, excuse me, the collective bargaining agreement for Major League Baseball would control. And there may be some language in the collective bargaining agreement that could bring some of this into question. Uh, that's probably a, a question to answer later on and see how far this thing goes and maybe take a look at that collective bargaining agreement and see what rights and remedies everybody has in that situation. Now, questions. Let's dive into questions. And and these are listener questions. And here we go. And as I always do, I take these questions, I copy and paste them. And first time I actually read the question and think about it from a legal standpoint is right here during this podcast. So if you have a legal question, two ways to reach me, 855 law father and lawfather at tampalawfather.com. Those are the two best ways to reach me and get your questions in. I also put stuff up on Instagram and Facebook each week, reminding everybody to get their questions in. Uh, if you notice, the show format has been every other week, questions and case or no case, and I think we're going to continue that. So you have two weeks to get your questions in before the next show. Anyway, first question, if you get laid off, and can't afford to pay your child support or alimony, are there any exceptions? Now, I'm assuming, since this question came in really recently, as in the last two, three, four days, that it ha- this question has to do with the coronavirus and the pandemic that we're in the middle of. And the simple answer to that question is yes. Yes, there is there is a, a way, there is a vehicle to change your child support or alimony. Uh, Child support and alimony are two different things, so let's just dive into that real quickly. Child support is exactly what it says it is, uh, is dealing with the child, okay, and the amount of money that you pay the other side for child support, and that's what child support is. Uh, Alimony is uh, basically spousal support, is a synonym for alimony. So uh, two different things alimony has to do with need and ability to pay child support. There is a calculator for it. there is a worksheet for it. Uh, it has essentially less to do with need and ability to pay like alimony does. But when you have some extenuating circumstances that can change your child support payment. And right now, most of the country, I would, I would say almost all of the country is in the middle of an extreme extenuating circumstance. And, you know, if you can't find a better textbook or you can't find a better textbook example of an extenuating circumstance as we're in right now. Now, that really just scratches the surface on that question. uh, And that is something that my office can handle. Uh, Monique Scott my office doesn't handle these types of cases. 855 uh, law father she'll be able to get into a lot more depth into the answer to that question and she can be able to help you out with that. So whoever had asked that question, please call us at 855 law father, ask for Monique Scott and we'll get you in touch with her and get that answered for you and if we need to start a legal proceeding, we can absolutely do that. All right? So now, number 2. The police came to my house to ask my dad questions. He wasn't home. Should he talk to them? Great question, short answer is no, absolutely not. The police come to your house, don't talk to them. The police come up to you on the street, don't talk to them. Now, if they stop you, okay, you kind of have to, but if they say, hey, I wanna talk to you about this crime that was committed over there, your answer? Talk to my lawyer. Why? I did nothing wrong, right? wasn't me. Or, hey, I think I'm smarter than everybody else and I think I'm going to talk my way out of this even though I really did do it. Call your lawyer. And here's how I here's how I know this, okay? Look, the police don't come to just ask questions. If they're going to ask questions and they already know the answers and they already know you did it, you're going to be in handcuffs and then they're going to ask questions. How do I know? Because this is how I used to do things. Six years in law enforcement, I learned a few things, okay? Uh, there's one that really stands out to me. There was... Uh, I really just started and and was working in, I believe it's uh, either Safety Harbor or Oldsmar in Pinellas County and we had a car fire and it was an arson and it was out in the woods uh, somewhere over there. And we get some information and we figure out who the car belongs to. Now, if you've ever seen a car catch on fire, it destroys the entire thing. Glass actually melts into liquid. It's, uh, It's quite amazing. So, um, there wasn't much left. I believe the tag was left, which was kind of shocking. I think it may have fallen off before it really had a chance to melt and disappear. So we had this lead and we go to the house and we start talking to mom, dad, and kid. I believe the kid was 18 at the time. He was, he was young. He was 17 or 18. And I start talking to him. Now, look, I have no idea, no idea who did it. Okay start talking to him, start asking questions. And we'd take something that we have literally no idea who did it and we turned it into arresting the, the child for it or the, the, the kid, like I said, 17 or 18. So, um, that's, that's in a nutshell. Now if he had just said, Nope, I'm not going to talk to you. Talk to my lawyer. We would have left. It would have got forwarded to detectives. They would have hired a lawyer. Detectives would have, called them, the lawyer would have been involved and told them to say nothing. Okay. Fine. Law enforcement, build your case, show us the evidence. Then we'll see. All right. But have a lawyer involved for that. Uh, there, And I could name you several other instances where I was able to arrest people just based on having a conversation with them that is completely Hey, Hey, can I ask you about this? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. You can ask me about that. Okay, great. Right? No Miranda issues there. So just want to keep in mind, right? And hey, they didn't read me my rights. They didn't read me my rights. So let's talk about that real quick. And we'll get into that in a lot more detail in another podcast because I think, uh, A, we're going a little long here and B, you know, I want to have that actually be a main focus. But real brief version of it is that uh-huh your Miranda rights, your quote, unquote, quote, unquote, they read me my rights, right? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Those, right, have to deal with in custody interviews. These interviews that I'm talking about, the interview that this question seems to be asking about is what we call a non-custodial interview. You don't have rights. You don't, you're only right as you can say, I don't want to talk to an attorney, but I don't have to tell you that. So you do have rights, but I don't have to tell you your rights if I'm law enforcement in that situation. So short answer, don't talk to them. Remember this number 855 law father The police come to talk to you. Tell them, hold on. Hold a second. I'm going to call my attorney and then we can talk. All right. I'll talk. Hey, we can put it on speakerphone if we need to. That's fine. We can have that conversation right there. I'm okay with that. 855 law father for that. Now, lastly, number three, I was told Florida is a no-fault state. I was rear-ended. How does no-fault affect me? All right. Definitely a much longer topic that we'll get into on a future podcast. But here's what that means. All right. Florida has $10,000 of personal injury protection benefits. Your personal injury protection covers you. All right. You get rear-ended, so you're the car in front and you're hurt. The first $10,000 of your medical bills comes from your own insurance. Anything over top of that comes from the other driver's insurance. Your personal injury protection covers 80% of your bills. You're responsible for the other 20%. That's where we come in. We come in and say, hey, the other 20%, our client shouldn't have to pay that. And any amount over $10,000, they shouldn't have to pay that. So therefore, you caused the crash mr person who rear-ended our client so you're responsible for that and then we get into pain and suffering and lost wages and those things Uh, so even though florida is a no-fault state you do that the insurance companies do assign fault juries can assign fault okay Uh, you would have to assign fault in order to find somebody negligent and go from there so yes florida is a no-fault state but it's really Delegated to that first $10,000. Uh, there's other states, I believe New Jersey is $200,000 in pip. And, you know, those cases are a lot different, not licensed in New Jersey. So really only talking about Florida here, but vast difference between a true no fault at $200,000, what I call Florida being a hybrid because our limits are only $10,000. If you've ever seen a hospital bill after a car crash, $10,000 goes really about to the hospital bill. Okay, so any other any other treatment after that, for the most part, is over and above that $10,000. So that said, that is the Lawfather podcast for today. All right, 855-LAW-FATHER. If you have a question or just want to talk to me, lawfather at tampa com, Instagram, the Lawfather Tampa. Facebook, the Lawfather. And remember, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And uh, I look forward to talking to you guys in a week. Lawfather out.
0: This is a Forking Around Town with Tracy Guida Quick Fix on Radio Influence. So one company that I love and I'm sure you guys have seen them is called True Lemon. Now their Instagram handle is at True Lemon. You can find them at any grocery store. I'm sure Walmart carries their products. I discovered True Lemon back in, I want to say, 2011. And they have packets of lemon crystals that you can add to your water or tea and this was great for me because sometimes when you go out you might go to a place that doesn't have fresh lemon or if it's one of those self-serve places where you know they have lemons out I always get kind of freaked out about that I don't want anyone else touching my lemons so this was a great alternative since I started following them they've been coming out with all kinds of products they even have drink packets like a lemon peach tea or raspberry tea that you can add to your water. And they actually sent me a variety pack of some of their seasonings. So this week I was playing with their lemon pepper, which I love lemon pepper, especially on chicken wings. And since I've been using my air fryer, quite often. I went ahead and purchased some wings from this awesome place in South Tampa known as the Green Store. So if you guys are in South Tampa, you know what I'm talking about. They have the best prices. I've been going there every day and getting different meats and chicken to kind of cook with. So I just, I got some wings. I sprinkled the lemon pepper seasoning on them, placed them in the air fryer at 400 degrees for about 30 minutes They came out fantastic, very economical during this time. My kids love them and it's nice to give them something healthy and not fried because like myself, my kids eat out with me a lot and I'm trying to really clean up our our diets during this time. Forking Around Town with Tracy Guida can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play and RadioInfluence.com.